This season we're looking at a few things, um, a little more controversial subjects that we might be asked about in our Christian lives. Uh, so this tonight we're talking about hell. Next month we're going to look at the role of Israel um, in biblical prophecy, in the last days, in the role of Israel in uh, just God's timeline. And then uh, in, in November we have Peter Linus with us from Evangelical Alliance, um, who many of you might have seen on TV. Uh, dear friend of mine and uh, he is going to be talking about human sexuality and, and just all the sort of furore around that um, and how we respond as Christians and there's nobody I know better than Peter to talk about that. So uh, we've got a great season lined up. The first Sunday of the month we do uh, Encounter which is our worship and prayer night and then the third one we do Equip. But you wouldn't even notice I was drinking that she wouldn't. I'm so quiet. <laughs> I'm like a camel, honestly, and then I spend all the rest of Sunday just in the bathroom, TMI, too much information, but um, yeah, um, we're going to talk about hell. Um, Father God, as I come to your word tonight, I ask that you would help me, help me to not say more than your word says and not to say less than your word says. Lord, I'm tired tonight, um, and so I just, I pray for your Holy Spirit to energize me. Your word says you will receive power, do namas, when my spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, and so I ask for your Holy Spirit to breathe fresh life into me. Give us receptive hearts, and Lord, help us to hear from you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I figured if you're going to talk about hell, start with a little bit of humor. It's the only bit we're going to get. Um, everybody on earth dies and goes to stand before God in judgment. And God says uh, to them, I want the men to make two lines. One line for the men who were the head of their homes, the bosses of their houses, who dominated their women, who were in control. And another line for those who were dominated by their wives, who did everything their wives said and uh, were under the control of their wives. And he looked and on this line that of, the, of the men who were the strong men who had dominated their homes. There was only one man. The other line went for miles around the block of heaven. And God got mad and said, You men should be ashamed of yourselves. I created you in my image. And you were all controlled and browbeaten by your wives. Look, only one of my sons has stood up and made me proud. Learn from him. Tell them, my son, how did you manage to be the only one in this line? And the man replied, I don't know. My wife told me to stand here. <laughs> Tonight we're looking at eternity and hell. And I, I've been a Christian for 28 years and I've heard very few sermons on this subject. It's something that we want to shy away from because we want to preach positive messages. And I do preach positive messages. If you've been around here for the last year that I've been here, I love preaching positive messages. I love encouraging you, uplifting you, edifying you, exhorting you. I love all of that stuff. And we've been doing that through the summers. We've gone through the Gospels. But there's also times when we need to preach those messages that make us a bit uncomfortable. People love to feel good in our culture. We have a feel-good culture. We love movies with happy endings. I mean, I, I know none of you are probably watching that program that's on at 9 o'clock tonight called The Bodyguard. But the, the woman died last week. And, no, I spoiled it for you. Um, the MP or the, uh, and everybody's in shock because there's three more episodes to go and they can't believe that one of the main characters died. And because we like happy endings, we thought it was all going to work out fine. My wife, if, if, an, if, if a movie is incredible, two hours of it could be incredible, but if the last one isn't a happy ending, 
she hates it and, and, and she gets really upset. And we love happiness because we're a culture that is continually looking pleasure. We are a culture that is in pursuit of happiness and pleasure and good feelings. People don't talk about how they think in our culture, they talk about how they feel. That's been one of the biggest shifts in our culture in the last 50 years. People used to say, what do you think about that? Now they say, how do you feel about that? Which is a completely different question. Because it can just... How I feel about some of the things I'm preaching tonight are different than how I think about them. There's some things in this book, quite frankly, I wish it didn't say. I feel uncomfortable with it but as I think about who God is and how much he loves us as I think about it I have to preach it my thinking has to overrule my feelings because our the heart is deceitful above all things Jeremiah said and so as we come to God's word tonight we have to understand that sometimes it does make us uncomfortable sometimes it will make us squirm a little bit and we are living in a culture today which is becoming more and more liberal, more and more tolerant of anything except absolute truth, and more and more opposed to any objective truth that this is black and white, that this is what the Bible teaches. If your truth and my truth, if that works for you, that's great just don't force it onto me uh, and that's the culture we live in and yet the bible is very clear about some things william booth the founder of the salvation army uh, over a hundred years ago made this sobering and reflective prophecy and it's very much true for today he said i consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century and he was actually talking about the 20th century will be religion without the holy ghost christianity without christ Forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. And then there's the other side of things where if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you will have seen those preachers who almost have a glee in their eyes as they talk about hell. They love to dangle people over hell. They love to threaten people, the people in the middle of Belfast, sometimes with sandwich boards and loud healers, who almost seem to have this sadistic glee around the subject of hell. I, I remember when I was in Lurgan and there was a billboard on a town centre church and it said this, where will you spend eternity, smoking or non-smoking? And I, I thought it was funny. I did think it was funny. And then I got annoyed. I, I, I laughed like you laughed when I first saw it, because it is funny. And then you go, actually, this is eternity in hell. And, and, and I thought, like, is this the message we really want to send to our culture, that we're kind of gloating over hell? Um, if hell is real, it's no laughing matter. So I did laugh at first, and then I went, actually, I'm not sure that's as funny as I first thought it was. Um, one preacher used to say this, when you preach about hell, you should also always do so with tears in your eyes. I think that's a really good place to start. If we're talking about hell, we should have tears in our eyes. In fact, I find it really hard to preach the gospel and see anyone come to Christ without tears in my eyes because I just, I, I'm so moved by the compassion and love of Christ. I love what Francis Chan says here. Francis Chan's one of my favorite preachers. Um, if you're going to listen to anybody on the subject of hell, Francis Chan's as good as you're going to find. In my desire to distance myself from sadistic Christians who revel in the idea of wrath and punishment, I may have crossed a line. 
Refusing to teach a passage of scripture is just as wrong as abusing it. Refusing to teach on a subject is just as wrong as abusing the teaching of that subject. And so I come to you tonight as a pastor. I come to you as someone who is trying to submit myself to God's word. And I want to be as clear as I can and show what the Bible says about what happens when we die. I don't want to tell you what I think. Because honestly, I don't really care. And most of you might not believe this. I don't really care what I think that much. I get tired of listening to myself. I get tired of listening to my own voice. I don't really care what you think. I'm not being rude, but I do care about what the Bible thinks. And uh, if you're going to come with an opinion, have a scriptural opinion. Um, otherwise, uh, I don't honestly want to hear it. Because if we're going to discuss things, let's discuss things from this book and not just how we think and feel. Not just, well, I like to think of God as like this or like that. Um, the issue of hell became huge really in the last 10 years because of a book that came out. And I have the book. I was trying to find it before it came out, but everything in our house is in storage at the minute. It was a book by a guy called Rob Bell. It was a book called Love Wins. And Rob Bell was a megachurch pastor in the States. He led a church of over 10,000 in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He brought out the NUMA DVDs, which some of you might have saw. They were fantastic. I mean, I used some of them. And Rob Bell was a very uh, prolific and influential preacher. I, I loved a lot of his stuff his early stuff, and I could, then I began to see a trajectory that he was moving along. And this book then, Love Wins, eventually came out. Rob Bell is no longer a pastor, can I say. Uh, after Love Wins came out, uh, 4,000 people left his church, and he then left also. So even with his, in his own congregation, where he had built up a huge degree of favor, even for them, this was a step far. Uh, he is now best friends with Oprah and if you want to see him you'll find him on the Oprah channel. Um, not being sarcastic, just true. Um, Oprah who says that it doesn't matter who you follow, we all go to heaven anyway. Um, yeah, so, so this book Love Wins basically says that hell is, uh, hell is what we create in this life when we don't live out God's love. It's the hell that we create, amen, by the wrong choices that we make. In terms of after we die, there may be some form of hell, but it's only temporary, according to this book. God's love will eventually melt even the hardest heart. And ultimately, every single being will be reunited with God, even Satan himself. should read the end of Revelation. Um, in other words, if we don't respond to Jesus in this life, we get a second chance after we die. And if we don't respond, then we get a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance and a sixth chance. And ultimately, love wins. Because his basic premise is a loving God would never condemn or sentence anyone to hell for eternity. That's the premise. Hence, love wins. As you can imagine, it provoked a huge response. Not that the issue hadn't been questioned before, it just hadn't been questioned so publicly by somebody within, if you like, mainstream evangelical church circles. Um, and it caused a huge controversy. When I was in Shankill Parish in Lurgan as a curate, this book came out. And uh, I had started a thing on a Sunday night there called Arise with a lot of 20-somethings. Probably 50% of them were reading it. A number of them were being incredibly influenced by it. Um, 
One of them was particularly promoting it and was trying to lead a group of people reading it. Funny, I've met him since I moved back to the area and he's no longer following Christ, interestingly enough. Um, because when you go on a certain trajectory away from Scripture, uh, it only leads one direction and that is not towards Jesus. Um, but uh, And that's why I, I spent so much time because I felt like I had to really stand before 230 young people or in, 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 in Lurgan and, and, and convince them of what the scripture taught. Time magazine brought out an article you can see there at the same time, uh, front page, what if there's no hell? And what Rob Bell does in this book, it's very clever actually. And I'm, some of you will know my backgrounds in marketing, advertising, PR, uh, and, and he, he does something very clever. He starts the book in the first few chapters by painting a caricature of a certain type of Christian. The dogmatic, Bible basher, Bible thumper, street corner preacher who is legalistic and who screams at everyone they're going to hell with a glee in their face. That's the picture he paints of the average Christian. And what, as you're reading it, you're going, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. That's not me. And so you're reading the first three or four chapters, and I'm going, this is a brilliant book, because that's not me, and, and I love where he's going. And then there's this subtle turn that happens after about chapter five or six, and he goes, well, if you're not that, then you must agree with me and believe all this other stuff, and there's no in between. It's a very subtle thing he does, and it's actually a very manipulative thing. Like I said, as somebody from a marketing background, and I love social, uh, psychology, in sales, we call it, anyone who's been in sales, we call it a yes ladder, okay? That if you can get a customer, you talk to a customer, you get them to say yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. Do you like this? Yes. Is it, would it help you? Yes. And eventually, you get them to the point where when you're making the sale, you've got them to enough yeses that they say yes to buying it. It's called a yes ladder. Do you understand that? If you can get them to say yes enough here, when they get to here, it's very hard for them to say no. And that's what Rob Bell kind of does in this book. As you're reading the first five chapters, you're going, yes, yes, amen, yes, 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 yes. And unless you're a discerning Christian, by the time he gets to, well, then you couldn't believe in hell, you're likely to go, yes. But actually, it's actually no. And I actually, as I read it, I felt kind of manipulated, actually, a bit by it. Um, I felt like he was probably affecting a lot of Christians who maybe didn't have the biblical knowledge that I've been privileged to have in studying theology. Um, and so I find it very difficult to, to be sympathetic towards him because, like I said, this is no small matter. Um, this is an eternal matter. And if you're influencing people's eternity, then you need to be very careful, especially if you call yourself a pastor. And so um, I, 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 I spent 40 hours studying the subject and, and, uh, and I came to the conclusion that the church for 2,000 years was right and Rob Bell was probably wrong. But here's how he opens his book. A staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. 
It's been clearly communicated to many that this belief is a central truth of the Christian faith and to reject it in essence is to reject Jesus. This is misguided, toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. So what I want to do tonight is not spend the whole night talking about Rob Bell's book. You can read it if you want, if you want to waste 10 pounds. Um, there's a lot of books that talk about it and give counter-arguments that might be better. Like I said, the Francis Chan book is, is excellent. Um, but what I want to do is look at what the Bible says. What Rob Bell says actually isn't that important. What the Bible says is. And so I want to look at, see what Scripture says, because when it comes to something this important, I mean, did you hear him, he started using words like conjecture and speculate. We can't do that with this subject. When it comes to eternity, we can't just throw out questions and conjecture and speculate. This is too important. We have to know what the Bible says. Because everything else, if, if, if we're wrong in this, why reach anybody for Christ? Why pray for the lost? Why share your faith? Who cares if he is right and love ultimately wins why don't we all just go and live however we want? But what if he's not right? What if actually Jesus ultimately wins? Which is kind of what the Bible teaches. By the time I finish this talk, 10,000 people will have died. It's not going to be that long. But when you think about that, 10,000 people will have died by the time I finish this talk. Three people die every second. This is an important subject. We need to be clear about it. And you know what? God doesn't want to trick us. God is not out to confuse us on eternal issues. He's not trying to hide the truth from us. And so we need to read the totality of what this book says. We interpret scripture with scripture. And what this book says is that there's a place called hell. But we're going to read it for what it is and say it as a clear warning about what lies ahead. Confusing signs. Some signs are confusing. If you go to the next slide there. Caution. This sign has sharp edges. Do not touch the edges of this sign. How many of you would be dying to touch the edges of that sign? Good luck. Some of the country roads around Blairie, I think that is. Uh, Two-hour parking. No parking anytime. Entrance only. Do not enter. Fire exit. Imagine there's a fire in here tonight and we all run towards the fire exit. And you're all sprinting out. There's a huge fire at the front here. You're all sprinting out. You get to the fire exit and you realize it's not really an exit. It's just a brick wall. It said fire exit. There was a sign saying fire exit, but that's not what it meant. And you say to the person who put it up, why did you put that up saying fire exit when it's not a fire exit? And he says, well, fire exit can mean many things when you break the words down. And you would say, why would someone tell us we could escape from death and danger when we couldn't? What sort of person would do that? Because when something is life or death, when it's that important, it needs to be said in the clearest way possible. You don't need different interpretations you don't need to understand original Greek or Hebrew. You don't need to figure out what every person meant when they put up the sign. You just need the plain, clear truth. 
And as I read Love Wins and as I read the scripture, I realized these two books are not saying the same thing. The Bible is clear and unambiguous, whereas Love Wins and other books like it twist and distort the Bible, take verses out of context and ignore and avoid issues that Rob doesn't want to deal with. Imagine, and this is why I often think about scripture, imagine you're in the desert island and this is all you have. What conclusions would you come to from reading it? You've never read the Bible before. You're stranded on a desert island. You find this and you read it. What conclusions would you come to? That's probably the right conclusion. We don't need nuances and vague interpretations about what God has made very clear. So what does the Bible say? Well, I'm going to actually look at a story Jesus told about hell in Luke 16. Because I figure if we can't trust Jesus, we can't trust anyone. And if we can't trust Jesus, then uh, we're probably going to get it right. So the first question, I'm going to ask just a number of questions here. Does hell exist? First question. Does hell exist? Pretty basic question. Because if the answer is no, we can all go home right now. It may surprise you that the person who spoke about hell most was Jesus himself. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Some people think that Jesus is so loving, kind and compassionate that he would never talk about hell, but that is not the case at all. There's 12 separate mentions of hell in the New Testament and almost all of them come from Jesus. 13% of Jesus' teaching was about hell and over half of the parables talked about hell. One such parable that we're going to look at is the story of the rich man Lazarus in Luke 16. Let's read it, 19 to 23. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So Jesus tells a story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man wore designer clothes, Versace, Armani, Donez. It says he wore purple. He was loaded because only the seriously rich wore purple in those days. It also says he wore fine linen. And that's quite funny because actually, without getting into too much of the original Greek, in the original language that meant he wore expensive underwear. He had nice cacks. Um, he had fancy pants. He looks good. He looks successful. He looks like he has it all in life. Calvin Klein showing above his waist. Nice boxers, everybody. He lives in luxury every day, driving his bands with his bling, looking like he's got it all. The ladies love him. The boys want to be like him. He's in the best clubs. He has got it all. What about the poor man? Well, this is strange about the poor man because I can't think of, when you think of all the parables, I've never really thought about this. There's very few parables that name anybody. Think about it. A man had two sons. We don't know the sons' names. A woman lost a coin. Very few parables name somebody, and yet this parable names somebody called Lazarus. So I can't help but wonder if Jesus is actually speaking from first-hand experience here. It's the only parable I can think of, actually, where he names somebody. I could be wrong. But it's the only one I can think of offhand. That he actually, so a lot of scholars are thinking that Jesus is maybe telling us a real story about something he has seen in the unseen realm. Lazarus' life is the complete opposite of the rich man. He's a beggar. He lies by the gates of the rich man's house every day. He's covered in sores. 
his life here on earth is miserable. Look at what Jesus says. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. So Lazarus dies. He doesn't even get a decent burial. The angels carry him to Abraham's side. Abraham is the friend of God, the founding father of the people of Israel. In other words, Lazarus is with God. He's with God's people. He's in heaven. That's, what we, that's basically what Jesus is trying to say. He's with the people of God in heaven. What about the rich man? Well, he dies and he's buried, but look at where Jesus tells us that he ends up hell. Jesus is the only person who has ever crossed from the invisible spiritual realm into the physical visible realm that we live in. No one else in the history of the universe has ever done that. I know you can buy books and you can go on YouTube and you can watch people who say they spent 21 minutes in heaven or uh, 16 minutes in hell. And, and it's great for selling books. We don't know if it's true. I'm not so sure. If I was wanting to make a lot of money, I would write a book saying, I've been in heaven for 25 minutes. Here's what it's like. But Jesus is the only one who we can know definitely has been in heaven and has come to earth. And he understands what happens in the invisible spiritual realm. So if we want to know what happens there, the best person to trust is Jesus. Jesus talked more about hell. Now don't forget the question we're asking is, is there a hell? Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. A few things he said, Matthew 5, 22. But I tell, you that not every, er, I tell you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool or raka, which was a term of derision in those days, will be liable to the fire of hell. Matthew 5, 29 to 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. He says that very clearly. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear those who can destroy. Uh, fear, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Verse we all know well, Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church in the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 23, 15. What are you teachers of the law and Pharisees? You travel over sea and land to make a convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as son of hell, twice as much a son of hell as you are. There's, these are just a few verses. There's many more verses, um, and we will look at some in a minute, but I think you get the point. Hell does seem to exist because Jesus talked about it a lot. The word that Jesus uses for hell is Gehenna. Gehenna. This is an important word. In Jesus' day, Gehenna was actually a real place. It was a huge rubbish dump located in a valley to the southwest of Jerusalem. In the past, it had been a place of worshiping demons and child sacrifice. It was a horrendously awful place. And now it was a place where refuse was dumped. Animals fought over scraps to consume the rubbish. And to consume the rubbish, there was so much rubbish, they had this constant fire burning. 24-7, this fire burned in Gehenna because there was so much rubbish. So when Jesus talked about hell, Gehenna, the listeners would immediately have pictured the most horrible, disgusting, pagan place where the fire never stops. That's what would have come to their mind. A place of evil, fire, and misery. That's what they would have thought about. Second question then is what is hell like? This is the part that a lot of people find 
hard to stomach because the picture painted in hell is pretty terrifying. And they find it hard to believe that a good God would ever allow anyone to go to somewhere as terrible as hell. Look at the parable we're studying. In hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, no, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony. Look at the language used, torment, agony, fire. These are so, just some of the words that Jesus uses over and over again to describe the awful reality of hell. And there's four main descriptions of hell that we see throughout the Bible. And the first one is this, darkness, darkness. Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. The man buried his talent. He wasted it. And when the king, or when the king comes back, this is his judgment. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness. 2 Peter 2, 4. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness. In the Bible, God is described as light. Jesus is the light who came into the world. The farther you get from the light, the darker it becomes. Darkness brings fear. Darkness brings danger. Because hell is total separation from God, the further you are from God, the more likely you are to be in hell. Because there's no light, there's only darkness and fear. So darkness is the first image. Second one is fire. Parable of the sheep and goats. He will say to those on his left, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 13, the son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out the kingdom, everything that causes sin and evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where they will weep and a gnashing of teeth. Mark 9, 44, if your hand causes you sin to cut it off, better for you to enter life maimed with two hands and to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Gehenna, where the fire never goes out. It seems strange because the first one was darkness and now this is fire. The two don't normally coexist together. Fire normally lights up darkness. And yet the Bible teaches that hell is a place of fire and darkness together. So we've got darkness, we've got fire. The third one is punishment. Matthew 25, they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Second Thessalonians 1. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. Second Peter 2.9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment. Hell is a place where those sins that have been committed in this life, that have never been brought under the blood of Jesus, are punished. I'm thankful for that. I'm being honest. I'm thankful that there's justice one day. That we serve a God of justice and a God of mercy. Any sin brought under the cross of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, it's gone. There is no punishment for that. All of the punishment was laid on Christ, Isaiah 53. But if it's not brought under the blood of Christ, there's punishment for it. That terrifies me for those who don't know Christ, but I'm also deeply thankful. Because as I look around the world and see so much injustice, see abuse, see people trafficking, uh, young girls, see victims, see 
see abuse of power, see so much hatred towards the things of God, it's so easy to despair. But you also have to go, God, I know that you're a just God. And one day, one day, you will deal with this. And therefore, I don't have to. Because there's times when I want to deal with it. There's times when I want to give people the right hand of fellowship. There's times when I want to deal with injustice. And I have to, and even in the past week at times, I have had to remind myself vindication comes from God. That it is not mine to seek revenge. That he will make everything right. And we will get to that a little bit more in a second, that his justice is so much more perfect than ours. Punishment, and the last one is banishment. Banishment is separation, exclusion from God and his presence. Matthew 25, 30, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness. Verse 41, depart from me. Second Thessalonians 1, 9, they'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. For me, this is probably the most terrifying thing, to be shut out from the presence of God, to be cut off from the presence of God, to be closed off from the presence of the living God. Darkness, fire, punishment, and banishment from the presence of the living God. You know, it's really important to remember that hell wasn't originally created for men or women. It was created for Satan and his demons. Look at what Matthew says in, or Jesus says in Matthew 25. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels I used to be the chaplain of a, a prison in Dublin I was actually the chaplain of a sex offenders prison which was a, a crazy place to go into the largest sex offenders prison in, in the republic I was one of the chaplains I used to go in and bring communion every month to there was it was a prison of oh, 200 of the worst not the worst actually to not that there's a good sex offender but they i'm just sorry that but i'm not but they were the ones who were like the not the ultimate worst they were the ones who who were being rehabilitated um, so i'm not i'm just i'm not going to lie to you and make it worse than it was but it wasn't pleasant but prisons that prison was not built for everybody it was built for a very specific category of person and the staff were there for a very specific category of person. And the, the psychologists and the, all, everything was there for a very specific, it wasn't just a general prison. And, and hell wasn't just created for everyone. It was created for a very specific group of people. And that is Satan and his demons. When Lucifer and a third of his angels rebelled against God, hell was created as a punishment for them. God's intention was that men and women would live in his presence forever and enjoy him. But we rebelled against God. We turned away from him. And in our pride and arrogance, we turned from him and followed Satan. And if we keep following Satan, if we don't repent and change direction, then we will follow him straight into hell. Because whoever you follow, that's where you end up. If you follow Jesus, you end up where Jesus is. If you follow Satan, you end up where Satan is. And the Bible says that hell was created for Satan and demons. How long does hell last? Well, this is where Rob Bell and Love Wins differs from what Christians have historically believed. This is what Rob says. Hell is what we make of heaven. This is even, I find this hard to read. Hell is what we make of heaven when we cannot accept the good news of God's forgiveness and mercy. But hell is not forever. God will have his way. How can his good purposes fail? 
Every sinner will turn to God and realize he has already been reconciled to God in this life or in the next. There will be no eternal conscious torment. God says no to injustice in the age to come, but he does not pour out wrath. We bring the temporary suffering upon ourselves, and he certainly does not punish for eternity. In the end, love wins. I would love that to be true. Wouldn't that be great? And I do agree with one part of it is that we do bring punishment on ourselves by our own stupidity at times. We create our own hell sometimes. I have made a lot of really stupid decisions. Like, like I've said sometimes, the devil hasn't, he's been able to have a day off on me plenty of times. He just needs to sit back and watch me make my own stupid decisions. But ultimately, there is eternal conscious torment according to scripture but this is i would love rob to be right i'll never forget the sunday i was preaching in lurgan on on this subject somehow i i I was talking about heaven and hell and just how without christ you were lost and as i preached i looked down and i saw a woman sitting at about the seventh row actually it was on my right shankland parish is a big church and and she was sitting there and I had done her husband's funeral 10 days earlier, and he was very openly not a Christian. And I, I just, I stopped in my tracks as I was preaching, and I realized this isn't some hypothetical subject. This is her husband I'm preaching about here. And we need to always remember that with all of these subjects, don't we? When we're talking about sexuality, we need to remember these are real people, real family members. And I stopped, but I also realized, you know what? I can't. What if he had sat in church one Sunday when I had preached that and had repented? And so, because one person chose not to repent, I can't stop giving others the opportunity to repent. But we just need to remember, these are not just subjects. They're people. This is, this is, this is real life here. It's easy to talk about all these things as an objective subject, but when you look in the eyes of someone, you realize that you have to show so much compassion. I would love Rob Bell to be right. I would love that on the other side of the grave that we all get a chance again. I would love that we get chance after chance after chance, but I just don't see it in here. From cover to cover, I just cannot find anywhere that says that after we die, we get chance after chance after chance. The Bible clearly says that our sins separate us from God and none of us deserve heaven. It says there's no one righteous, not even one, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that it's only through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross that I can be saved most famous verses in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. In other words, those who don't believe in him shall perish. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. I believe the Bible says very clearly that this life is the only time we get an opportunity to say yes or no to God. 
And if we say no in this life, that affects eternity. If we say yes in this life, that affects eternity. Hebrews 9.27, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Look again at Jesus' parable, verses 24 to 26. So he called him Father Abraham. Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, and this is the important bit, as we're talking about, is there opportunity after death? Between us and you is a great, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, neither can anyone cross from there to us. Jesus is saying that after you die, you cannot cross. Now, Rob Bell would explain this by saying the chasm's in the rich man's heart. <laughs> I'm not sure how he says that. It's not a physical chasm. But Jesus seems to say very clearly, after you die, there's no change of destination. Jesus repeatedly and consistently spoke of hell as being eternal fire, eternal punishment. And Rob Bell continually tries to make the argument that eternal doesn't mean eternal. It doesn't actually mean forever and ever. It just means a set period of time. But the problem with that is if eternal doesn't mean that in relation to hell, it doesn't mean it in relation to heaven. Eternal either means eternal or it doesn't mean eternal. We don't get to pick and choose. It seems to me that the very clear teaching of the Bible is that in this life we make a choice for or against God by what we do with his son Jesus Christ. We choose to accept him or reject him, to know God or to ignore God. And those decisions we make in this life on earth will have eternal consequences which cannot be reversed once this life is over. Our choices in this life affect our eternity. Who goes to hell? This is probably the hardest question of all. And we are nearly done. As I said earlier, as someone who has close family members, this is a, it's a very pertinent subject. I have to face the reality tonight that if my brother were to die, I don't believe he'd be in heaven. Some of you can think of family members and friends right now, who don't know Jesus. And so this is a, this is a very serious, and, and, and the consequences of, of this are, are eternal. So what about those who die and have never heard about Jesus? What about those who never got an opportunity to hear the gospel? What about children and young people? We've all asked those questions, haven't we? Let me say a few things as we finish up. First one is this. We must hold all of God's attributes together. We must hold all of God's attributes together. For many Christians today, the supreme attribute of God is love. That's it. God is love. First John says, God is love. So that makes sense. Therefore, a loving God would never send anyone to hell. End off. However, 
when you reach the fullness of Scripture, God is love, but that is not all that God is. God is love, but love is not God. And if there's one thing that has really bothered me about this book, it turns God into this two-dimensional being who is just love. And actually, I found myself saying, if Rob Bell is right here, I'm not sure I want to follow this God because he's just nice and bland. He's kind of like your dear old granny who just is nice and, 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 and harmless and maybe your granny isn't harmless, but... Uh, I'm just thinking back to my own granny. She wasn't that harmless at times. Um, she used to feed us sugar cubes. Um, but uh, but it just it makes God very bland and two-dimensional. Like, uh, here's the way I, I, I... Imagine you say to me, what's your dad like, Craig? And I say, he's, he's loving. And you go, well, explain to me. I go, he's just really loving. Like, he's just... My dad is just so loving. He's just really loving. And, and you say, well, what if somebody... Does she harm Craig? And I go, well, Dad just loves him. I mean, he's just so loving. And you go, well, what if somebody broke into your house and was attacking your mom? And I'd go, Dad would just love them. I mean, he would just love them. Because he's just loving. Do you see where I'm going with this? There comes a point where love actually becomes something very dangerous and destructive if it's only love. It starts to look more like something very harmful. I love what Francis Chan says here. He says, God is love, but he also defines what love is. We don't have a license to define love according to our standards. Do you know what the central, and actually this isn't in my notes, but I want to say this, and I know it'll come up in Revelation as well. Do you know what the central characteristic of God is? Holiness. It's the only thing it says both in the Old Testament and New Testament that he is holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6, the angels are on the throne. Revelation. Holy, holy, holy. And when they said things three times, it was, it was emphasized. We would put exclamation mark or whatever if we were doing today. I like to think of the holiness of God as the umbrella. It's the otherness of God. God's holiness is his complete difference to you and I. He is not like you and I, just a bigger version. That is not the way he is. He is holy. He is completely different. And under this umbrella of his holiness comes love, comes mercy, comes compassion, comes justice, comes wrath, comes grace, comes all those other things. Do you see what I'm saying? But it's all under the umbrella of his holiness. God is holy holy, holy. So yes, he is love, but that's only one aspect of his character, which is completely encircled by his holiness. God and only God makes a decision about who goes to heaven, who goes to hell. I will never pass judgment over someone where someone will spend eternity. For this reason is I do not know their heart. I have no idea what happens in somebody's heart in those final moments of their life or before those final moments. And when you read what Jesus says about heaven and hell, his greatest judgment is not for the 
people you think would be going to hell is for the people who you would have assumed in that day were going to heaven. The religious leaders of the day. And then when you get beyond the Gospels, the greatest warnings are not to the pagans outside the church, it's to false teachers within the church. In Paul's letters. And I believe, and I hope that I'm not on the wrong side of this, I believe when we get to heaven, we'll be shocked by who's there and who's not there. There will be people that we assume will not be there, and they will be there. And there will be people that we would have thought, you know what, they were just so spiritually, just loved the Lord so much. And they never knew Christ. I told you the story of the lady in Lurgan. I know I did on this year who was a chaplain. She was a chaplain of an organization. She was a church warden for many years. And one day I said, do you want me to pray about anything? She wasn't well. And she asked me to lead her to Christ, and I nearly fell off the chair because everybody, her sister was a mayor of Craig Alvin. Everybody who knew her assumed she loved Jesus, and she'd never received Jesus Christ. And I did that woman's funeral a number of years later. And I was able to, because her sister was a mayor, every, every MLA, every counselor was there. And I was able to share that this woman thought she knew Jesus, but didn't. And she came to repentance and faith. I think we'd be very surprised. Look at what Jesus said. Woe to you teachers of the law. You deceive yourselves. You shut the door um, to the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You will not enter. The Pharisees were actually, you know what? The Pharisees in Jesus' day, like I know we all go boo, you know, it's like the pantomime, boo, Pharisees. In Jesus' day, they were the, the kind of like the fundamentalist evangelicals. They were the people who knew their Bibles. But that absolutely low love or compassion. And even more terrifying, and this is one very sobering passage where Jesus says in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did I not have an Instagram page called Daily Prophetic in your name? (laughs) And in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That's terrifying. Did we not preach in your name? Did we not share the gospel in your name? Did I not stand up and do a sermon on hell in your name? I never knew you. That's terrifying. I never want to be in that camp. I want to always make sure that this is not just external religion, that this is heart transformation. Jesus said to them, that, that, that to the religious leaders, truly the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. So I will, never, I will never judge who's in heaven or hell. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. God respects your free will. One of the things I get asked is, well, why didn't create, God just create us all just to, to love him? And, and that way none of us would have went to hell. And here's, here's the illustration I use. Imagine if I discovered a red pill called the love pill. Okay, we'll call it the love pill. And when I give this pill to a beautiful woman, she falls in love with me for 24 hours. Okay? Some of you are like, some of the guys are like, where'd I buy this? I will pay anything for this pill, Cooney. And so this is long before I've met my wife, obviously. 
and I haven't given this to her. Um, so I meet this beautiful woman, the woman of my dreams, but she's not interested in me, hard to fathom, I know, but, she, she, uh, but I take out the love pill, pour, you know, spike her drink, whatever you do. Um, I don't know, I don't know where I was going to go with that. Um, yeah. Um, and she takes it and 15 minutes later, she's madly in love with me. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. This girl's in love with me. Is she really in love with me? Well, no. So what if I got to do 24 hours later? Give her another red pill. And the next day, another red pill. And the next day, another red pill. And the next day, another red pill. And I've got to keep giving her red pills because I'm terrified that if I don't give her them, she'll not be in love with me. Is that really love? No. She has no choice. Love without choice is not love. God did not create us to be robots who have to love him. He created us as men and women in his image who have the free choice to eat from the tree or not eat from the tree. He respects our free will enough to say, you make the choice, but live with the consequences of that choice. Because love which is forced is not love at all. God lets us make real choices, real decisions, and those have real consequences. And so if someone in this life has made the decision to reject God, to say no to God, to say, God, I want nothing to do with you, God says, I respect your choice. I will give you what you want. I mean, what sort of God would force someone to spend eternity with someone they hate? Think about that. Imagine, I'm trying to think of this. Imagine if I was like, you know what? I don't want to hang out with you at all for the next year. Because like, I actually don't really like you that much. But in a year, I'm going to need somewhere to live, so I'm going to move in with you. Like, you'd be like, but you don't like me. Or imagine, actually, that's probably not the best answer. I'm trying to think of an illustration. Okay, yeah. You say, Craig, I really don't like you. I can't stand you. I know you wouldn't. I can't stand you. And I go, that's okay. But in a year, I'm forcing you to live with me for eternity. You'd go, but I don't like you. But I'm forcing you to live. That's kind of what? This is like, I don't want to love you in this life, Jesus, but I expect you to welcome me into your house for eternity. Why would God do it? Why would God force himself on you like that? That's not respecting your freedom. If you say, God, I don't want to know you in this short, little, minuscule life, why would God say, okay, but I'm going to force you to spend eternity with me? What sort of a God would do that? If someone spends their life rejecting God, God gives them what they want, essentially. C.S. Lewis said this. On that judgment day, there will be two groups of people. There will be those who have said to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Ultimately, God gives us what we really want. If we want him, we get eternity with him. If we don't want him, he won't make us have him. Number four, as we come into land. Trust God's character. Trust God's character. And this is really for those questions that the Bible isn't clear about. Trust God's character. Like what about those who haven't heard? 
What about children and young people who die? I've never had the opportunity to respond to Jesus. Trust God's character. There's a little verse tucked away in the first book of the Bible in Genesis 18.25. God's about to destroy the city of Sodom for its wickedness. And Abraham says, but God, if you destroy it, those who are good and righteous will die also. And look at what the Bible says. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous and the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. And then look at what he says. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer is yes. We trust God's character. I know some of you will have heard this story before. When we, but when we don't have a clear answer in here, we trust his character. I got engaged to Becky after four months of dating. But after six weeks, we were talking about marriage. We were looking at rings after six weeks of dating. And I was out one night in Belfast with friends in that six-week period, and I was saying, I'm going to marry Becky. And two of my friends who were bachelors at the time were trying to talk me out of it. And uh, they said, Craig, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. So you don't know her. You don't know everything about her. You haven't seen her in every circumstance. You need to date her for years. You don't know what she's like under different circumstances and different situations. And you don't know what she's like if this and this and this happens. And here's what I said to them. You're right. I don't know what she's like in every situation. But I know her character and I know her heart. And therefore, I don't know, need to know how she will respond in every situation. Because if I know her character and her heart, I can trust her in every situation. I don't know what happens to kids. I trust God's character. I don't know what happens to those who have never had the opportunity to hear. I trust God's character. Because if you think you're just, he's so much more just. If you think you're compassionate, he is so much more compassionate. If you think you're loving, he is so much more loving. And so those things I don't know about, I don't speculate about, I just say, will not the judge of all the earth do right? But if everyone ultimately gets to heaven, first of all, why would Jesus talk about hell? And if everyone gets to heaven, why would Jesus die on the cross? That's the bottom line. If, if everyone gets to heaven anyway, what's the point in Jesus' death? I have one son. He's my only son. I would not hurt one head, her on his head for any of you. And yet the Father sent his Son to die for you. To go through an agonizing, cruel death on a cross. Would he have done that if there was any other way to save you from hell? I don't think so. His death was not just a good example. It was not just to show God us how much God loves us. It does that. It was to save us from our sins, which separated us from him in this life and for eternity. And so while I will never pass judgment on whether anyone has gone to hell, and I won't, I will tell you that you can be 100% sure that you're going to heaven. The real question isn't what about those who haven't heard? The real question is, what about those who have? How are we going to respond to the good news of Jesus? That only through Christ we can know God for eternity. 
Because that relationship that we start here simply lasts for eternity. I was at a funeral this week. And it was a man who had loved God his whole life. And there's something beautiful about it. Funerals are sad, but there's something very beautiful about a funeral of someone who truly loves Jesus. Because you know that they're with their Savior. You know that the one that they have a relationship with their whole life, they're just, they've just passed from, they've graduated from this life to the next to be with their Savior. And the yes that we make in this life is a yes for eternity. Eternal life begins now. But the no that we make in this life does have eternal consequences. One last quote. It's not about figuring out all the mysteries of God, but embracing him and cherishing him, even when he doesn't make perfect sense to us. You know, there's many things in the Bible I don't get. There's many things God says that I wish he didn't say. But I also don't get why a holy God would look at those who have turned their backs on him, who have rejected him, who have rebelled against their creator, who have spurned his love. Why he would look at someone like me and send his only son to be mocked, rejected, spat upon, beaten, and crucified so that I can be forgiven. I don't understand that. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Have we Isaiah 53? We do. Let me just read this. This was written 700 years before Jesus. It was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment and that made us whole. Through his bruises we get healed. We're all like sheep who have wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. And God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him, on him. 